And this is something that's really valuable because I work with a lot of clients who struggle with panic and I've had horrifying panic and I took benzodiazepines like Xanax and Valium for panic. So I understand the sheer agony that panic can bring. And at the same time, if we can hold the space for panic, even for just a moment before trying to silence it, right? If we can just hold that space for just a moment and allow it to communicate an unmet need, that will start us on the process because what we deny will amplify, what we resist will persist, and acknowledgement is the answer to understanding what this cast of characters is doing on center stage because they're taking over and we need to find out what they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish. Hey, welcome back to Normalize the Conversation. Today, I'm here with Dr. Nicole Kane, mental health expert helping people to beat anxiety. You can connect with her on Instagram at Dr. Nicole Kane. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you really? I'm well. I'm truly honored to have the opportunity to be here and share in this space as an anxiety freedoms warrior myself being able to share a story of hope from a perspective of actually going through the process myself is what sets my soul on fire. And so I'm really happy to be here. So thank you. And thank you for the work that you do. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to have you be here. And you talked a little bit about how you have this personal connection with anxiety. So what really inspired you to start helping people to beat anxiety? When I, the story could be as, as long and winding as we make it, but I will aim for brevity. Um, when I was in third grade, I carried a cute little fanny pack with a first aid kit in it. And I read little first aid books in the library and I wanted to help people. And I loved being able to be at the ready with a bandaid in case somebody got scratched. But what I found that really made my soul happy was when I could tend to them emotionally while putting that bandaid on. So it started at a young age and a big thing that I've dealt with since I was a kid is sinus congestion. Couldn't breathe at night, always congested. And so my parents took me to the doctor who put me on a medication with a decongestant and that had the side effect of making me anxious my heart was racing and I was still congested. And so they added a medication for the anxiety and the heart racing. And then that had a side effect. And by the time I was in college, I was taking more than six pharmaceuticals a day, no healthier, and also now dealing with side effects. And so, as you can imagine, my path of pre-med, my path of wanting to become a doctor, I felt so disenfranchised by that. And so I thought about what do I love that I really believe in? And it was counseling. So I went to counseling school. I got a master's and I was in a group rehab with adolescents and I was helping as a counselor work with them towards recovery. And there was this moment where I'm sitting in the rehab. It's eight o'clock at night. We're in group therapy. And this girl has a giant monster drink, which is for listeners who don't know, it's a caffeinated drink like Red Bull. And she's drinking this monster drink. It's eight o'clock at night. 
her drug of choice is cocaine. So she's talking about her, her recovery from cocaine and what she's doing for that. And she's expressing a ton of anxiety and insomnia. And then she takes a big swig of her monster drink. And in my mind, I'm like, well, we should have a conversation about the biology and what's happening in her body with the monster drink and how perhaps there may be a switching from one substance to another, but that was out of scope, right? As a counselor, I couldn't talk about lifestyle and, and substances. I had to talk about the mental emotional piece. So we sent her to a psychiatrist who gave her a sleep aid, who gave her a, a medication. And my heart was just broken. I was in the system that I had been trying to not be in and I didn't want to do it anymore. So I started exploring and I went to medical school and I found naturopathic medicine and naturopathic medicine is all about getting to the root cause. It's all about prevention. It's all about finding what your body is trying to tell you so that you can heal. And I was on fire so much that I pushed and pushed and pushed. And that old anxiety that had been present during my adolescence reared its ugly head. And I started having panic attacks and I stopped sleeping and I lost so much weight. I stopped having my period and I was still working and still pushing, but I was, my body was on fire. My brain was foggy. My sleep wasn't there and I hit rock bottom. And so then Fran, I did all of the things that I told my clients to do. I took herbs. I took remedies. I meditated. I did yoga. I did hypnosis. I went to an Ayurvedic doctor. I went to a psychiatrist. I got massage. I did transcendental meditation. I did all of the right things that you are supposed to do for anxiety and my anxiety got worse. And then I in rock bottom had the opportunity to look my anxiety in the face and ask my anxiety, what is it that you are trying to tell me? And that's when my life changed. And since that time, my life mission has been to help people recover from anxiety like I did. And I've had the great honor of doing that. I've been interviewed as an expert in Forbes. I'm, I redesigned the biopsychosocial curriculum at the medical school that I had graduated from. Um, I've worked with patients around the world. And so I'm, I'm honored to be able to share that story with you from a place of humility. And I get it. You are absolutely incredible. That is such a powerful story for that anxiety to have started so young and to see how the system works, where it's just medication on medication. And when that doesn't work, you just keep adding and no one's kind of confronting that root cause and how to actually help you. And to notice that in your work and say, you know what, I can't be a part of this. I need to be part of the solution and to go out and become this amazing force that's actually helping people to overcome their anxiety. And like you said, the biological factors at play, there are so many factors at play outside of those regular strategies that we tell people to use. What are some of the other um, factors that are at play? I talk about it in terms of cast of characters. And so in the conversation, I like to use this literary metaphor of you're on stage, you are the protagonist of your life. And when you think of a theatrical play, you have the protagonist, and then you have these different characters that the protagonist is interacting with. And some are antagonists, some are supporting roles. And with anxiety, what can happen is that this 
character that is supposed to be a supporting character, you know, it's good for me to be anxious about driving recklessly. Anxiety protects me from being a reckless driver. But what can happen is if that character or that cast of anxiety characters pushes the protagonist to the sidelines and is like, you don't worry about this, Dr. Nicole, we got it. And that's what happened in my story of anxiety is that my supportive characters took center stage. And then I was suddenly pushed to the side and anxiety was running the show. And so the question is, who are those characters? What is anxiety? And so I think about it in three main types of characters. One is the psychological characters. Your psychological characters are your, it's all of the things that counseling focuses on. It's your thoughts, your experiences, your traumas, it's your logic and it's your emotions. And then we have the second, which is your social cast of characters. Your social cast of characters is culture, it's politics, it's family dynamics, it's racism, it's economics, it's what you are relative to your environment. And then the third is the biological cast of characters, which we're going to focus on together today. And your biological cast of characters can be very expansive. It's anything that's happening in the body. And so we can explore this in more detail, but as an introduction, think about adrenals, thyroid, think about genetics, think about toxicity, think about nutrient deficiencies, anything that impacts your biology could contribute to the formation of a biological character that presents as anxiety. So that's the introduction to our cast of characters. I love that explanation. I think it helps it make so much more sense when it comes to anxiety. It is so confusing. A lot of times it's written off and um, it's belittled. So then you don't understand what you're going through when it gets really bad and you don't know how to cope with it. You don't know what's wrong. What do you do? It just, like you said, it takes over. And then what do you do when it takes over? And I love how you separated it into the different factors. It's not always trauma. Trauma is one reason that can cause anxiety and cause a lot of different mental illnesses, but there are other things at play. And if we don't target all of them, we're not going to help ourselves to get better. And that's one of the the failings of our mental health system is if you go to a chiropractor and they look at your anxiety, oh, well, you have anxiety because your spine is out of alignment. And then you go to an endocrinologist and they're like, we've got to fix your hormones, but maybe that person does have abuse in the home. Right. And so it's like, you're saying is we want to be able to look at the whole person and look at all of the cast of characters and see how they're creating this theatrical experience of your life of anxiety. So I just really wanted to echo what you said there. That was brilliantly said. Thank you. And again, like you're saying, we have to look at the whole picture. It is failing people to not look at the whole picture, to ignore so many other factors. And then when we start to talk about the factors, we don't talk about them in whole. Like you said, hormones is a huge part of your mental health, especially as females, when our body goes through four different phases a month, hormones play a massive role in making sure that your levels are where they're supposed to be at the right time. Your vitamin levels, when you're deficient in vitamin D3, for example, that's a mood stability vitamin. There's so much at play outside of what we usually look at. 
and we need to look at it as a whole. So zooming in on biological factors, a lot of people do struggle to identify that cause of those increased feelings of anxiety. Are there more than one cause? Is there one cause? Is it stress and burnout? Is it mental illness? Is it just, is it medical? Is it just these feelings of anxiety that are normal? So what are some of the examples of biological factors that may help us to learn more about where our anxious feelings are stemming from? So in order to answer that question, I think that the listener and what helps me is to understand what anxiety, like what's actually happening in the moment that we have anxiety, because what I want to really help people to differentiate is it can be kind of scary, right? As somebody who's listening to this and they've been told their whole life that it's in their head. And now we're having a conversation that it could be something else, which then can create health anxiety. And so I think the first step is to explore what is actually happening when we get anxious. And then we can kind of pick apart, well, let's look at this piece and explain what that could be. Does that sound like an okay road to take as I answer this? Yes, that is an amazing route to take. Brilliant. So when we think of anxiety, let's look at the brain. And so for those who are getting to see this as a video, I'm holding my hand up and we're going to do a model of a brain. If you're just listening to the audio, I want you to hold your hand up and like you're doing a high five and then take your thumb and put your thumb in towards your palm. So you're kind of making the number four and then put your other fingers over that. So you're making kind of a fist with your thumb tucked in. And so then what I want you to do is to look at your fist, look at the thumb side, your fingertips are going to represent the area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. And this is the area of the brain that's behind your forehead. Your prefrontal cortex is your logical brain. This is where we can have thoughts of confidence, but it's also where we can have thoughts of fear. Like what if I fail my test or what if the plane crashes or any thought that we have that can be frightening, right? So this is your prefrontal cortex therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy really focuses on your prefrontal cortex. And so if you've been to talk therapy and you feel like it's helped you, but it hasn't gotten you all the way, it's because talk therapy really focuses on one part of the brain that can produce anxiety. And so there's hope. So this is where we go to the midbrain. And so as you're looking at this model, you're going to look at your thumb. And if you lift your fingers up, you can see that the thumb goes into the center of your brain. By the way, I'm borrowing this from Dr. Dan Siegel. This is his model. So your thumb represents your midbrain. This is your limbic system. This is where the emotions of anxiety come from. So this is the feeling of fear. This is a feeling of foreboding. This is a feeling of dread, but it also is the seat of sadness. It's the seat of love. It's the seat of excitement. It's where the emotions come from. And so therapy that focuses on the midbrain, like EMDR, which stands for eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing therapy and mindfulness. These focus on this, uh, ego state therapy focuses on this meditation focuses on this midbrain. And so this is an important part of anxiety, right? These are the feelings of fear and anxiety. So we have the thoughts in the front, the feelings in the midbrain, and then we have the brainstem and the brainstem is represented by the back of your hand and your wrist. And so that's in the back. And your brainstem produces the physical symptoms of anxiety. And it does that by sending chemical signals down through your central nervous system into your peripheral nervous system. And think about that as the highway that carries information to and from your body and your brain. 
And so when your brainstem is activated, it's going to send signals anywhere there are nerves, which is everywhere, babes, as you're listening to this. It's in your gut, it's in your fingertips, it's in your tongue, it's in your uterus, it's everywhere. And so when the brainstem gets activated, you may notice your heart racing, you may notice numbness and tingling, you may get diarrhea, you may get a headache, you may dissociate where you feel like you're not quite in touch with the world or in your body. And so when your brainstem is activated, talking isn't going to work. Talking and logic isn't going to work. We have to speak to the brainstem. So the way that these work together is your brain decides that there's danger for whatever reason. And there's lots of reasons, which we'll get to, right? And so then your brain sends chemical signals to the body and your body sends chemical signals back. And this is called your autonomic nervous system right? So your autonomic nervous system is sending all these signals. It says danger, danger, danger. And so then you start to feel your heart is racing. You feel your muscles tensing. You feel numbness and tingling. You feel like you need to move. You get restless. Your gut hurts. You're not able to see clearly your blurried vision. So a typical pattern may look like this, right? So I'm going to tell you a story about Susie. So Susie is gathering berries in a field to take to her, her family, right? And Susie's aware that there are tigers in the forest. And so her senses are tuned. She's listening, she's smelling, she's kind of looking around, gathering her berries and a hungry tiger growls in the distance, right? And so before Susie can even think logically about it, her brainstem kicks into action, very automatic process. So she, her brainstem turns her body into a state of autonomic arousal, that fight, flight, freeze. So now her heart is being faster so that her body can get lots of blood and oxygen and energy so that her muscles can run, right? So her muscles are tightening and tensing and it's pulling blood away from the fingertips because you don't need to feel the, ten the, the texture of berries when you're running from a tiger, you need strong muscles to run, right? And she's breathing really quickly so that she can exhale carbon dioxide, breathe in oxygen and run, run from the tiger, right? And she's zigzagging lightning speed. Her thoughts are racing and she's able to jump over logs and zigzag and get to safety. So then we have Susie is in a office building in 2021 and she starts to feel the same thing, right? Her heart is racing. She's numbness of her fingertips. Her muscles are tightening. She's breathing faster. She's having a panic attack. So the difference is context. The body produces the same chemical signals in a state of fight, flight, freeze as it does in a panic attack. And so the biggest difference when you're having anxiety is context. So the most powerful thing that you can do when you're having anxiety is to stop and notice and say, okay, I hear you. What do you need me to do for you? And that is looking anxiety in the face, acknowledging anxiety, acknowledging that anxiety has a message and then allowing yourself to hear that message. And that's what got me my life back is by shifting my focus from how can I make anxiety stop? How can I make anxiety go away to look anxiety in the eyes and to ask what anxiety is doing for me? Is it getting me away from a tiger? How can I get my life back from anxiety by acknowledging it? So 
I know this is a long description. Before I go into some of those biological characters that may produce that state, do you have any questions about what we just explored? First of all, I love the way you explain that because context is everything. And when you're dealing with anxiety, you don't realize that. You don't realize that having a panic attack is that same feeling and that same response of being in actual danger. And it feels very confusing. And to know that, like you said, there's different levels of the brain. I can't even move my hand, <laughs> but wrong hand, should on this side. But <laughs> these different levels to know what can actually help you. So if you're past that point of logic and you need to target the emotions, if you're past that point of emotions, knowing where you're at can be so helpful in understanding not only the context, but what your body is feeling and what your body needs. So thank you for explaining it that way, because it brings a whole nother level to anxiety. And we can treat the brainstem. We can target the brainstem directly. And this is something that's really valuable because I work with a lot of clients who struggle with panic and I've had horrifying panic. And I took benzodiazepines like Xanax and Valium for panic. So I understand the sheer agony that panic can bring. And at the same time, if we can hold the space for panic, even for just a moment before trying to silence it, right? If we can just hold that space for just a moment and allow it to communicate an unmet need, that will start us on the process because what we deny will amplify what we resist will persist and acknowledgement is the answer to understanding what this cast of characters is doing on center stage because they're taking over and we need to find out what they're trying to do what they're trying to accomplish and that context is everything exactly and knowing that it's treatable, a lot of times we feel like with our anxiety, if a medication doesn't work, then it's not treatable. It's in our head and that's it. And we're never going to overcome it. But to know that you can treat it at all three levels is huge and offers so much hope to someone who is struggling. And I imagine that the listener right now is like, well, okay, what can I do? And so I'm borrowing this from the work of Marsha Linehan. She founded Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, DBT. And DBT has a ton of really useful resources for targeting the brainstem specifically. And she has an abbreviation TIPS, T-I-P-S. I've supercharged it so that it's TIPS and I add some extra S's. And so if we could take a little side trail and just talk about some of those really quickly so that your listeners have something applicable that they can end this podcast with that they can use right now. Is that okay? That is amazing. So let's start with tips. So T is tip the temperature. So if you're starting to have a panic attack, if your heart is racing, if your logic is completely shut down and you're just in sheer fight, flight, freeze, tipping the temperature is huge. Now, the best way to tip the temperature is to apply cold around your eyes. So I'm thinking about the area underneath of your eyebrow and up on your cheekbone. And so in DBT, they talk about taking your face and putting it in a bucket of ice water, holding your breath for 30 seconds. And let's face it, we don't all carry around buckets of ice water and panic can strike anywhere. It can strike driving down the highway. It can happen in an airplane. It can happen on your first date. It can happen in the middle of sleeping, right? 
So there's a solution for that. So you can go online and they make these chemical freeze packs. And so they're small, they're portable. And then when you feel the anxiety coming on, you just break it up. It creates a chemical reaction and the pack gets cold. And so then you can apply that to your face for 30 seconds at a time. And what that does is it evokes something called the dive response. The dive response is a response they observed in deep sea divers who, when they were under deeper water, that their heart rate slowed down, their blood pressure went down, their breathing slowed down. And so we can create that response to kind of counteract some of what Susie was going through, right? By putting that cool water to her face for 30 second increments. That's the T. And then I is intensive exercise. So when you think about Susie and she's running from the tiger, she gets all this energy to run from danger. And if we're somewhere where that energy can't get released, it's just going to be spinning inside of us. I have patients who describe it as like bees in their chest or like their muscles are twitching. When I was having bad anxiety, my muscles would spasm and jerk involuntarily. And so moving that energy out of the body through intensive exercise can be helpful. And then P stands for paced breathing. And so I love to do four count breathing with an essential oil or blowing bubbles. Blowing bubbles is my favorite because in order to blow bubbles, you have to slow down the breath, right? You can't just be hyperventilating into the straw of the bubble because you're not going to make beautiful bubbles. And so it's a way get a little portable bubble blower, put it in a fanny pack, make your panic pack, and then you can slow the exhale that activates your autonomic nervous system to shift you into calm. So that's paced breathing. And then S is scent. So essential oils, candles, your dog, something that feels good. Uh, I like to use sight. So change it up, turn the lights on, turn the lights off, look at something different, name three things that you see. And then another S is scene, changing the scene up. If you're inside, go outside. If you're in your office, go to the bathroom. If you're in uh, one seat and you can't go too far, change the seat, look the other direction. So those are some ways to target the brainstem. Those are amazing tips that you can tips that you can take with you anywhere. No matter where you are, you can use at least one of those and actually more than one. And to know that if I'm having a panic attack, even in the middle of an exam, if I had that little pack maybe in my um, jacket sleeve or in my pocket, or if I just close my eyes for a few minutes and open them and just change the lighting for a second if I was able to move a seat over that I can get through it, that there's something I can do. And I think a lot of times when it comes to anxiety, we don't think there's anything we can do until after this panic attack has come and gone. And then we talk about it next time. What can we do? Is a coping mechanism going to change it? But if we don't have anything to do during it, it just feels so defeating every time it happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I have a whole video and a blog that I'll share with your audience that teaches you how to make your own panic pack. And so I'll make sure to get that sent over to you. Perfect. I can't wait to make mine. It's so fun. I have mine in a glittery fanny pack and I just, I especially love having it in airplanes. I don't love to fly. I know it's not logical, but right. The, the prefrontal cortex, part of the triad of your cats or characters. 
And so would it be okay if we talked about just a couple of the high yield biological cast of characters that might be good to ask your doctor about? Yes, please. So a couple that people often don't think about is heavy metal toxicity is one. Heavy metal toxicity is way more common than we often think of. And the difficulty with heavy metal toxicity is that you can have an ongoing exposure or it could be old. So you may have been exposed to it. Let's say that you lived in a house that had lead paint on the walls when you were a kid. And then years and years and years later, you develop symptoms, but you've since moved on from that house. And so what a lot of doctors do incorrectly is they'll just do like red blood cell lead or red blood cell mercury. And that test is designed to look more at acute poisoning. So like your kid got into the, the, <laughs> the museum of old thermometers and like drank mercury or something. that's like what those tests are for. Right. But what we want to look at is heavy metal exposure that is stored and active. And when it comes to heavy metals, there are a few major contenders. And so we have mercury can cause a ton of anxiety. Lead can cause anxiety. Palladium can cause anxiety. Um, I actually have them written down here so that I don't miss one for you. Cadmium that can cause anxiety. And we talked about arsenic and uranium. And so when we think about these, we want to do a pre and post test. And a pretest is where you just provide a urine sample and they measure for heavy metals. But then a post test is where we take a provocator. A provocator is something that's going to pull those metals out of storage where they're actively causing problems, but they're stored. They're not just loose. It's kind of like letting all of the the squirrels out of their tree houses and now they're running around reaping havoc. Right. And then you test that you do a chelator a provocator, and then you retest it. And so when we think of heavy metals, we want to think about them. If you have anxiety or depression or a family history of anxiety or depression, or even if you struggle with inattention, like it's hard to concentrate or focus. Someone's given you a diagnosis of ADD or ADHD, bipolar disorder, suicidality, even psychosis and schizophrenia. We want to start thinking about if someone's struggling with mental health and isn't getting better with standard treatment, they'll slap a label on you and say, well, you're refractory to treatment. Good luck. But in those cases, it might be heavy metals. And a secondary indicator that it could be heavy metals is if you have hormone symptoms. So women who have PMS, PMDD, where they notice that their mood swings go with their cycles, but then every time they do hormone testing, it's fine. It could be heavy metals because heavy metals disrupt enzyme systems. They disrupt, um, neurotransmitter production. Neurotransmitters are those chemical messengers in your brain, like serotonin. Um, and it disrupts organ function. So if we start thinking about what's a little bit less obvious, like a lot of doctors will look at thyroid, cortisol, adrenals, but if you've had those tests run and everything is normal, and yet you still struggle with these symptoms, you've done all the logical work and yet you still struggle with these symptoms. 
look at heavy metals. So that's the first biological character that a lot of people aren't talking about. That is incredible. That is something that no one really talks about. I was recently reading, um, I think the end of Alzheimer's by Dr. Bredensen. And he talks about how one level of Alzheimer's and dementia is toxins. And it's something that we tend to ignore. And that is something that we can catch so much earlier if we are paying attention, if we are testing, if we're offering the right information so people know that that could be a problem and they should advocate for themselves in that way. So thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, it's super important. And I think the second most important thing, like if I got to pick two biological characters, it would be toxicity and emphasizing metal toxicity for anxiety. And then the second is the gut brain access. And so I'm sure that your listeners have heard to a degree that there is some sort of a relationship between the gut and the brain, right? Is so what's really interesting to me is how it works. And so I want to explain that a little bit. Is that okay? Yes, please. So what we have is we have your brain and your brain makes neurotransmitters and metals can disrupt this, by the way, it can make it so that you can't make them. Genetics can make it so that you can't make them, but your gut is profoundly important. And here's how it works. So in your gut, we have good bugs, bad bugs, and yeast. And so we want to have this perfectly delicate balance. And when it's in balance, the good bugs make 95% of your serotonin. Whoa, that's a lot, right? So the good bugs make 95% of your serotonin. And then it's making all sorts of things. It's regulating your hormones, it's activating estrogen, it's deactivating estrogen, it's absorbing cofactors so that you could build things. And so your gut's doing all this cool stuff. And then your gut communicates through what's called the enteric nervous system. The enteric nervous system is a series of highways that send those signals back and forth between your brain via the vagus nerve. Your vagus nerve is the longest nerve in your body and it wanders from your brain all the way down to your body. And that's why it's called vagus because vagus in Latin means wandering. And so your gut's doing all this cool stuff, making all these cool chemical signals, communicating via these highways called the enteric nervous system to your vagus nerve, which takes that information to the brain and says, Hey brain, do this. Hey brain, do that. And then your brain's like, got it done. And so have you ever heard of the gut feeling, you know, that feeling you get in your gut coming from your gut and it's sending signals through your enteric nervous system to your vagus nerve, to your brain. So if you've taken antibiotics, which a lot of us have, right? If you've had an imperfect diet, let's be real. We've all had an imperfect diet. If you've taken any sort of medications that interact with serotonin, like antidepressants, right? It changes your gut and any changes in your gut is going to change the way that your gut communicates directly to your brain. And it will directly change your concentration, your mood, your emotional well-being, your sleep, right? So all brain treatments should also include gut treatments, but you don't want to be a guinea pig 
and the gut's a complex thing. So all treatments should also include testing your gut. What's going on in there? What bugs are in there? What's going on with your yeast? Are you absorbing your nutrients properly? Do you have enough enzymes? Do you have enough stomach acid to break things down so that you have the amino acids that can then get converted so that you have the tryptophan that can be made into serotonin? You should always look at your gut. So that's the second most important of our biological caster characters. I am so happy that you brought that up because recently I went and got MRT panel done because I heard all about the gut health and gut health connects to your immune system and your mental health connects to everything. And everyone's Mm -hmm. like, that's a dumb idea. Like now you're just knowing what foods you shouldn't eat. Like, why would you want to live that way? And it actually does help you when you're eating the right things. Like everyone says I sound crazy, but when I'm changed what I'm eating and I don't eat like anything with corn syrup because my body can't um, process corn or um, rice or potatoes. So it's like everything in the world that I should be able to eat that's in every single product. But when I cut all that out, my mood got so much better. And I started sleeping again, like an actual eight to 10 hours and not a four to six hours. And that was huge. And we don't realize that there's a lot of power within our gut within different parts of our bodies that are attributing to our mental health. And there is that mind body connection that we need to pay close attention to. Yeah, that's part of my story actually as well. So I so celebrate you. So for those who are listening and not watching the video, I was doing like the raise the roof, like, yeah, you go girl. Cause that, that was my story. So remember I shared with you, I had congestion my whole life that started this domino effect of nonsense. And Turns out I am really, really allergic to cow milk protein. So casein and whey. And so by eating foods that I'm sensitive to, my body couldn't break down the proteins and then my immune system flagged it. And then suddenly there's an inflammatory reaction. Every time that I eat it, the inflammation is in the gut. It causes what's called leaky fenestrations or gap junctions or leaky gut. And then you have inflammation in your body. And we know that inflammation is the root of almost all disease and chronic illness. So then I'm inflamed and then my gut's all a hot mess. And then it's sending signals to my brain that changes the way that I feel. And for those who are skeptical, who are listening to this and it's like, oh, well, you know, Cain and Fran, it's, it's an N of two, but ask people what the number one side effect is for an SSRI, which is a serotonin medication like Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro. The number one symptom side effect of that is digestive upset. And it's because of that intimate connection between the gut and the brain. So getting your gut back on track with diet was profoundly helpful for your brain. Just like if you take a medication for your brain, it can interfere with your gut. So there's a powerful reciprocal relationship between the two. So I love that your sleep got better and that your emotional well-being got better. It is so true. And I love how you brought up with your congestion and how what you're eating presented in physical symptoms as well, which led to mental health symptoms. It is all connected. I cannot emphasize that enough because like you said in the beginning, we are failing with this mental health care system by not looking at the whole picture and looking at all these connections. But now let's say someone has listened to this and they see, okay, maybe it is one of these biological factors, but where do I get started? How do I advocate for myself so that the right tests are run so I can get these answers? 
Oh my gosh. That is such a good question because I see people run into one of two outcomes with that. One is their doctors like, I'm not going to run that. And then the person's stuck at the end of a dead, they're at a dead end. They, no one will run it for them. Or they go to a doctor who will do what I call spray and pray testing, which is where they order all of the things. And then this person is coughing up thousands of dollars and just praying that they'll find something abnormal that could be causing their symptoms. And I feel like both are completely insufficient and we can do better. So the solution that I created for that is in my anxiety breakthrough program, I actually have a whole section dedicated where I create an algorithm. And so the, the person you would take the quiz in there and there's a thyroid quiz. And so it would say something like, if you have more than three of these that you deal with, then it may be valuable for you to assess your thyroid. But if you don't, then don't focus on that first. And so I go through heavy metal symptoms. I go through solvent symptoms. I go through neurotransmitter symptoms. I go through gut health symptoms. I go through, um, epigenetic symptoms and some genetic testing kinds of things. So basically what I do is I empower you with the knowledge to print this out, circle it, be like, okay, these are probably my top three so that you can take it to a doctor who's willing to run the tests. And there are forward facing labs where you can get access to a lot of that without a doctor for cash pay. Oh, wow. That is absolutely amazing. And I love that you created an algorithm to let people know that here's Mm -hmm. where you should start, or here's where you might not want to focus on this first. Don't waste all that money because let's be honest, a lot of times insurance isn't going to cover something that they don't see necessary. So if the doctor's just ordering a bunch of tests, there's a good chance insurance is not going to cover it, or they're going to take months to want to cover it. And then Mm -hmm. you feel stuck. And that's something that's happened to me with the MRT panel. That was something insurance wouldn't cover. And I found out you could get it so much cheaper, like anywhere else. But for some reason, I found the most expensive place and I felt so defeated. And I was like, I have to try this, but now I'm spending so much money. And at some point, is it worth it to keep getting these tests done? So for you to create that program that lets people know, here's a place to start. Don't just throw thousands of dollars away running every single test in the book when here's where your main problems may come from. So you're helping so many people with that. Thank you. Oh, it's a lot of it. It's necessity, right? I, th- I think about where the system failed me and what I wish I would have had. And babe, I'm a physician and I went to physicians and experts and out of that, you know, like you were saying, it's kind of out of the tragedy of a, a healthcare system that's insurance run is that we have to be empowered listening to podcasts like this, the work that you're doing, this not for profit that you're you've created is unfortunately the insurance system is probably not going to get you there. So a lot of people will ask me, well, this is so cool. I've never heard of this one. My insurance cover it. And my answer is always your insurance has created the system. That is the care that you have been getting up to this point. If you want a different outcome, you're going to have to go out of the insurance model in most cases, which is really a a giant bummer. But some of the the ways that I've kind of gotten around that is one is through algorithmic prioritization of where we start. And then the second is through 
allocation of healthcare through like an HSA or a flex spending account so that you have some tax-free money where you can use it in ways that you know is best for you with the support of your doctor who's actually sitting down and looking at you as a whole person. That is absolutely amazing. And it's so true that this is a system that's been created and you're finding solutions to actually help people. But now let's say someone has gone, they've gotten the test, they got the results. How do they know how to start making adjustments? Where do you start? A lot of times it seems overwhelming because they find one thing that might be broken down into 10 different things. And that's 10 steps that you want to try at once. And you do it for a week and then it's just exhausting, overwhelming, and you give up. So what advice would you have to someone who wants to start making the right adjustments, but doesn't know how? I like to do one thing at a time and think about it as you're looking at a pond and we want to throw a rock into the pond and it's going to hit the water and it's going to create a ripple effect. But if you take a fistful of rocks and you throw them into the water, you have all these different ripples. So we don't quite know where the ripple goes and what happens, or if it's a rainy day and there's all sorts of ripples from the rain and you throw a rock in and it's hard to know what does what. And so I, I resonate with those people who are kind of like a two feet forward. I want to do it all, but I am so burned out and I'm so tired and I'm so stretched for resources and I'm barely surviving, let alone changing and overhauling my entire diet and taking all of the supplements and doing all of the therapy. And so for you who resonate very much with that feeling of overwhelm and yet the desire to do all of the things is do one thing at a time. So when I did my stool testing, yeast, insufficient enzymes, super allergic to casein and whey, the the milk proteins, And there's a couple of other things, I think like inflammation and other things going on. And so I talked to my doctor about where can I make the biggest impact with the least amount of change first, because I need to see results in order to keep going. Right. So we just simply started by just taking out the dairy. I didn't take any supplements. I didn't take any enzymes. I didn't have money for that because I just spent it on the test. And so just starting by removing the obstacle to cure. Think of the obstacle to cure, like you have toe pain and then you go to your doctor and the doctor's like, okay, we're going to heal up your toe. Take this pill, use this salve, your toe feels better. And then you come in a week later and you have brand new toe pain. And so then week after week after week, you keep going with toe pain. And then finally the doctor's like, what's causing this toe pain? What's happening? And you say, oh, well, I'm dropping a bowling ball on my foot every Thursday at bowling league. Well, suddenly the treatment's different, right? We got to fix the reason you're dropping the bowling ball. instead of just looking at the foot, looking at the toe pain. So that's an obstacle to cure the the clumsy hands, dropping the ball on the toe. That's an obstacle to cure. So for me, I always think about what is something I can remove that may be problematic for that girl in the story I told you about in the rehab, an obstacle to cure for her was potentially that drink that had all the caffeine and sugar. And so for her, just make one change, babe, just take out the, take out the monster. And it can make a big impact and it's less overwhelming. Exactly. One thing at a time. When we try to do everything at once, it is so overwhelming. It's so hard to make changes. There's a reason we do what we do. It's a habit. We're used to it. If it was so easy to make changes every day, everyone would be that person that they wanted to be. But it takes time. 
and doing it one step at a time and starting to see results is so promising. It gives you so much hope. Dr. Nicole, you have been absolutely incredible. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. It's really been an honor. Thank you so much for the work that you do.